Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Soprano. This is the 58th episode of the Tartan Talks podcast, our monthly conversation with an American Society of Golf Course Architects member. And joining us is Tom Clark of Alt Clark and Associates. This is Tom's 50th year with the same golf course architecture firm, and he's going to discuss longevity in the business. He also tells a number of great stories. Heck, we go for an hour on this podcast, and some of the people he's going to introduce you to include Ed Alt, Dean Beeman, and Sam Sneed. Of course, some of those names may be more familiar to you than others. But before we get going with Tom, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a giant supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad to have them on board, and we're glad that Tom was able to take so much time to join us. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, so many things to talk about here from your career, but the first thing I want to ask you is you joined Ed Alt's golf course architecture firm in 1971. We're recording this here in 2021. I'm not great at math, but that's 50 years how have you lasted 50 years with the, basically the same company in such a, a tough business? Well, Guy, thanks for having me, first of all, and I uh, appreciate you know, being here today. <laughs> and as I said, on the right side of the earth. And uh, I, first, I think I'd like to just give a little brief how I actually got into the profession and how I did last 50 years. And it basically started when college at Penn State University uh, I had a professor, Lynn Miller, who brought two famous architects down, Jeff Cornish and Bill Robinson. They were a firm out of Massachusetts to tell the students how to integrate a golf course with some home sites for some of the land planning in our class. But first, of course, they taught us how to, quote, root a golf course. Well, Jeff stayed a couple days, and Bill stayed in the studio for a week after and I would go up in the evenings and watch him sketch out greens and, you know, do some rooting plans and became infatuated with uh, what he, he was doing and asked him how I could get in the profession. He said, well, Tommy, you're either born into it or you luck into it. And he said, if you're born into it, like Reese or Bobby Jones, you know, you have a famous father, or you luck into it like he did. He graduated right out of the university and was picked up by Jeff Cornish and I think within a year he was a partner. I said, this sounds great. So I said, you know, how can I write to these guys or whatever? And he gave me a copy of Goftum Magazine. And on the back cover was a list of all the architects. I think there were 20. And I wrote to every one of them and basically got letters back from probably 15. And um, one was from Robert Trent Jones. I'll never forget. He said, Tom, if you could wait a year or so, I have a position in open up in Europe, and if you're willing to travel and basically relocate, you know, I may be able to offer you a position. Well, um, Reese introduced <laughs> Cavill Robinson to his dad, and that was history. But um, about, a, I don't know, three weeks later, uh, Mr. Miller, the professor, uh, said he got a call from Ed Alt down in Silver Spring, Maryland, who he had worked on a course up in State College with the Toft Trees and sent me down for a job interview. Well, I went down in an old beat-up Ford Falcon and had long hair, and I had some sketches, though, that you know I had done when uh, Cornish Robinson came down. Showed him Mr. Alt, and uh, literally was hired on the spot. And I said, well, first of all, how much are you going to pay me? 
He said $6,000. And I said, oh, I didn't go to school for five years for $6,000. He said, well, we'll make it nine. And um, I said, well, when do I start? I'd like to, you know, take a little time off. I've been in school for five years. He said, well, the day after you graduate, Tom, uh, that's the way this is going to work. And um, literally he handed me $20 for gas money, and I thought I was a great negotiator, and uh, off I went. So the day after graduation, I came down, and um, he said, meet me at my house at 5.30. And I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> so off we went down to Richmond, and he was doing a course called Hermitage. Uh, it was 27 holes, and we walked all 27 holes that day. And I will never forget it. It's basically, uh, I said, this is fabulous. You know, I love, you know, what you're doing out here. Because, you know, I had a golf background, but you know, not anything in architecture. And he literally said, you know, Tom, I know you drive, so here's the keys, and stop in that bar over there and get me a six-pack. So on the way back, he said, you can have one, and uh, he proceeded to chat all the way home. Well, that was the first and last day I was out of the office in two years, and he was so backlogged, I was knocking out, you know, rooting plans, green plans, things I really wasn't equipped to do uh, because he would come in the office, give me a, you know, a list of things and come in the next morning and pick them up and go because he was just as busy as could be. So I became somewhat disenchanted and fortunately I wrote back to Bill Robinson and said, you know, Bill, this is what's going on. He said, well, you probably need to find another job somewhere. <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't have any luck with my, you know, inquiries, but, you know, as luck would have it, about 10 days later, Mr. Walt walked in the office and said, I'm bringing my son in to work with us, and, you know, I'd like you to help him a little bit. He has no background in drawing or agronomics or, you know, not that I did, but, you know, so Brian came in, and, of course, we made fast friends and um, are still to this day. And consequently, that took all the pressure off of me, and then Mr. Old would take the two of us out, you know, on site visits. So we got out, and we got to learn a lot more out in the field with him. And that was probably um, a good seven- or eight-year relationship. So we finally said, you know, well, uh, are we going to be partners one day? Or, you know, so we had to actually say we're going to start our own firm. <laughs> Next day, the lawyer was in, and uh, we formed All Clark and Associates. And it just happened to be at a time when there was another upswing in golf, and uh, it was still alive at the time. And literally, as I said, he was at the point where he was in semi-retirement. He would come in in the mornings and out in the afternoons and play golf, at, you know, Indian Springs or play, you know, cards. And Brian and I kind of took off, and uh, as I said, it was prolific in the fact that we started taking in some interns, and a couple of them uh, we decided to hire, Bill Love uh, being the first one. And then I started picking up, you know, landscape architects from Penn State, um, Dan Schlegel and Jim Cervone, and uh, then we got Kevin Atkinson and someone from Kansas uh, Michael Penny and another one from Penn State, Anthony Cazat, and we just started filling up the office with designers, and then Brian's son came in, 
And pretty soon we had a full-time office and, uh, you know, uh, continued on that path until I guess probably around 2004 when things really started to slow down again. And that's kind of when Brian and I said, look, you know, it's unfortunate, but we have to start laying some people off. And, you know, I was very regretful, but it was business, and we got down to the two of us, and uh, I said, I had always lived in Virginia, and I had moved out to the country, and I said, you know, I'm commuting like an hour this way and an hour that way. I said, I'm just going to work out of home because nobody comes into our office anymore, (laughs) so I don't know why we need it. So within a year, he basically went to his home, I went to mine, and we've been very happy ever since. Um, so we've managed to, you know, um, this June will be my 50th year, and uh, that's how I managed to stay in business, because obviously once you're in the profession, you love it, and it's one of those things you never really retire from. Uh, as long as there's work, you're going you're gonna to jump on it and um, basically embrace every opportunity. A lot of us have played golf courses designed by Ed Alt and have heard the name, but what you worked with him, what did he mean to the golf industry? I think Ed not only was prolific in the number of courses he had done, but he first started you know, as an amateur golfer. He was actually a, a minor league baseball player before that. But he was a fine amateur. He won the, all the championships around Washington and, you know, he literally started, um, you know, he uh, was a member at Indian Springs Country Club. And when they were adding uh, or redoing the course or building the course, he kind of followed this gentleman, Alex Finlay, around. He was a golf architect from Scotland. And he became infatuated with the work. So he started picking up little jobs here and there. At the time, he was still working for the electric company. And then he hooked up with a gentleman named Al Jameson, who was a golf pro from the Washington area. And by the time I arrived in 71, they had done got close to 100 you know, facilities. So he basically was the first what I call minimalist. Um, and I mean that in a nice way because he was charging $6,000 for a golf course and building them for about 300 to 350,000. <clears> now keep in mind back in those days uh, they were seeded not sodded there was no cart paths it was a manual irrigation system because he didn't believe in electric he felt he needed an electrician for that and there was no sand in the bunkers and it took probably 3 years to grow in. So he did a tremendous amount of work around Washington. Um, and then he started spreading out to other places. He did some work in the Caribbean. He did some work over in Japan. Um, he forged a relationship out in Arkansas, which I took over with Cooper Communities. And, you know, one of the things he always stated that I really appreciate is when, you know, the rankings and rating system came out in magazines and publications he would say, I really don't give a damn about that, Tom. I only care about the 4 million people that play golf every year on my golf courses. And there's a lot to be said. He didn't really promote himself because 
these were the days when, you know, work kind of came your way. In other words, um, there was not much competition, you know, in the Washington area. And when you're only charging $6,000, I mean, why would you go shop around for somebody from the West Coast or somewhere else? So he meant a lot to the industry and the fact that, you know, he also uh, was one of the first people I know to hire an agronomist, Dr. Fred Grau of the University of Maryland, uh, who introduced zoysia grass and crown vetch, you know, to the area back in the United States. Um, and he just basically was kind of a pioneer in so many things. And, you know, maybe later in our conversation, I'll get into some of the work that we did with uh, the TPC and the PGA Tour and his basically inroads in the concept of stadium golf. Tom, how have you evolved as an architect since your days of driving a Ford Falcon around and buying six packs of beer for Mr. Alt? <laughs> well, I still have a 2005 Tahoe I've actually had repainted. Um, so it's not that things have changed, but I do have another car. Um, the evolution, I would have to say, basically comes from knowledge. It comes from the ability to see and play, I don't know, thousands of different golf courses. I think one of the greatest things for me was becoming a member of the American Society of Golf Architects and going to various venues and seeing some of the classic architecture, going over to Scotland, Ireland, and England, um, just traveling around and, you know, whenever we would get work in a certain location, um, you know, I would visit other clubs and, you know, get an idea of, you know, well, let's see, this course over here is supposed to have a nice reputation. And you pick up on so many different things. And that's what I said. It's basically the ability to uh, do a lot of work. And as I said, that was the one thing our firm basically had. I mean, the the stalwarts of the industry then were Robert Trent Jones and Jeff Cornish and Eddie Alt, meaning that was pretty much a lot of the East Coast architecture. I mean, there were obviously other architects, the Maples down in North Carolina, but from kind of the mid-Atlantic up, uh, they were doing most of the work. So we got I got an opportunity of a lifetime because I was kind of right in the middle of, you know, the explosion uh, of golf, you know, once again. It was like the National Golf Foundation came out with that, you know, we needed new golf course every day to open. And, well, we tried. I mean, we were up to 400 and some as an industry, and, you know, we got a tremendous amount out of that. I mean, one year, I think it was 1999, our firm had, 23 courses under construction, and I'm including nine holes and par threes and 18 and 27 hole projects. So there was a lot, you know, of work going on. And obviously, I think what happens is there was a lot of television. Um, there was a lot of photographs. And you could kind of see, you know, without necessarily visiting some of the other things that were, you know, being you know, instrumental in, you know, golf architecture. There were fads and phases. And, you know, as I said, 
Uh, there was the, the Jones era. There was the Pete Dye era, sort of. And, you know, everyone kind of picked up little pieces of that. But, you know, evolving, I think it really comes from, you know, just your ability to stay upright and stay in the business and, you know, attend, you know, some conferences and things because it's constantly evolving with the grasses and, you know, new bunker liners. And it's just, you know, we're building some really solid facilities nowadays. Tom, what was something or a few things you were doing in 1971 that maybe still work today? Is there anything uh, from 50 years ago that you could still apply to work today? Well, I think one of the big things, Guy, is, you know, it always starts for at least new courses with a solid rooting. Um, that was one of the things that all, you know, was prolific, you know, in his designs uh, as far as numbers, but it was also... Um, his famous statement was, I don't want to move more than a teaspoonful of dirt. Well, I mean, where other people were moving four or 500,000 cubic yards, we were maybe moving 20. Um, uh, it's just basically if you root it and, you know, you take care of your drainage. And that was the first day I went to work. It was the three words, drainage, drainage, drainage. And, you know, I've lived with that ever since, that... You know, a well-drained course basically is open 365 days a year, weather permitting. And, you know, that's one of the things I'm proud of controlling that, uh, you know, uh, rainfall. And, you know, so we have a, a course that's, you know, agronomically sound and firm and fast to play on. So the philosophy of the rooting, uh, the drainage, um, I think the... It's amazing how architects, you know, change as far as uh, their green designs and their bunkering. And that's one of the things I feel like I don't have any set pattern. It depends on the clientele, whether it's municipal, private, public, you know, daily fee, whatever. It's, you know, a little bit different. It depends on the topography uh, is had to take advantage of everything the site has to offer um, and consequently I think the things that you take with you is um, how much of the work in our industry and especially our firm was golf course home site related and you know how to really uh, divest the two in other words that you didn't have like homes on both sides of each hole and the, the infamous you know developer mentality we're going to get the most out of this and uh, consequently I think all of my you know rooting plans in the last 20 some years for the new courses have really followed that motif I mean we started out with 300 foot wide corridors we're up to at least 400 and we probably, you know, at least I know on my recent plans, I have housing only on one side. So, as I said, that's one of the things that I think has changed. The green speeds and things like that have dictated tremendously our design. Uh, even our fairway speeds. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can't have certain slopes unless you have wide enough fairways for runout. And I think that's uh, universal today is like you look at these old courses and you look at we just came back you know from viewing a 
Augusta. Well, I don't think there's a green there that hasn't been tampered with because, you know, back in the day when Jones and McKenzie, you know, first opened that, the, you know, green speeds were probably five or six. And, you know, now they're well up there in 12 and 13, and, you know, you've got to have areas to basically have a flat area to putt. Um, and I think that's what I think happens in a lot of our modern designs is we're much more intuitive to um, the speeds because people are getting spoiled. They watch a lot of golf on TV, and consequently, they, you know, uh, they don't necessarily pick up on the contour, but, you know, they always talk about the green speeds are rolling at this today. So we have to be cognizant of that. Speaking of golf course developments and watching golf on TV, you received an opportunity to work with Dean Beeman when the TPC network was in its early stages. Describe that experience to our listeners that maybe don't know a lot about Dean and what type of impact did Dean have on the golf industry and what was that work with him like for you and the firm? Well, Dean basically was a professional golfer from the Washington, D.C. area. Um, he and uh, Mr. Alt became you know, friends because of Ed's amateur career, and obviously they had maybe played in some events together. Uh, Dean had actually taken off and won a few tournaments. So Ed approached him and asked if he might want to work with him on some projects. Well, Dean jumped at the opportunity, and before the firm became all Clark & Associates, it was uh, Alton Beeman. And Dean brought three projects, one of which was this fabulous site right on the Chesapeake Bay, which you could look down from the Chesapeake Bay Bridge on. Another was his father-in-law's farm. And the third was a project called Avenel. And unfortunately, and probably fortunately, Dean was probably in the second year of that relationship when he was named tour commissioner of the PGA Tour. Well, one of the caveats, he had to do away with all his outside interest, which he had some real estate interest, and um, basically, and of course, the work in golf architecture with Ed. Well, that really didn't stop him from, you know, continuing to work with us, because fortunately, the PGA Tour had all these different sites and, you know, uh, felt they needed some improvements. So... His agronomist at the time was a gentleman by the name of Alan McCurick, who actually at one time I was the chief superintendent at Chevy Chase and Columbia. And Alan was a great guy, and he gave us an awful lot of introductions. Um, the work I did out at Arizona Country Club was basically because Johnny Miller's shooting 62 or whatever out here. Uh, he introduced us out to El Dorado. We went up to Pleasant Valley and... New England. Uh, he introduced me up there to Hamilton Golf and Country Club up in Ontario, where I was the, uh, I guess, consulting architect for 25 years and three Canadian Opens, and uh, Clampestre down in Mexico. And it just basically, we did work at Bardmore down in Florida. And then, you know, it led to Sawgrass. We did the original redesign of Saulgrass Country Club, where they had the uh, Tournament Players Championship the first year. And my consultant there was Gardner Dickinson. 
And I will never forget, the uh, wind blew, and uh, it was in March, and uh, I know Mark Hayes won the thing because he came from Oklahoma and could keep the ball under the wind. But I think the average score the first day was like 77. So we had <laughs> cut off the entrance to so many of the greens. The next year we were reopening them. And then Dean basically said, uh, you know, he was thinking of adding another course to that, you know, out the back. And this is when Mr. Alp presented to him, quote, our concept of what was hence called stadium golf. Uh, this came from, I think, Ed's years as a baseball player. He'd always thought about you know, why can't we have maybe some league play, you know, the West Coast versus the East Coast or New England versus Florida. Uh, and also, you know, during these tournaments, he said, why are you going to rent these facilities? Why don't you build your own and build it with, you know, like a stadium where, you know, the spectators can have mounding and consequently we even had people movers. I mean, we were a little off the rails, you know, with our first presentation, but Dean embraced the concept. So we did that original layout at Sawgrass, and the problem was, um, you know, the property just wasn't really conducive to that kind of a facility. But a few months later, he got an offer from uh, Mr. Fletcher for property across A1A, which is now the Tournament Players Championship course. So we did the original kind of layout work on that where, you know, the circulation and how to drain the site and where the TV would go and uh, all the parking and, you know, how to uh, basically host a major championship. Um, and we thought we were going to do the golf course, and he had a call one day, and Dean said he was going to hire Pete. Well, that broke Mr. Alt's heart because, you know, all the effort and time we put into it. But lo and behold, several years later, we got a call, and, um, you know, from Dean, and he said, well, we got that course that we worked on years ago, Eddie Avenel, and uh, we're going to build a TPC there. And he said, we'd like you to do it. How much are you going to charge us? <laughs> well, Brian and I were in the office, and Eddie brings us over, and he puts us on speakerphone, and he said, uh, you know, well, how much are we going to charge Dean here? So we we kind of wrote down a figure for like 100000 So, um, you know, Eddie had was first writing down thirty. <laughs> it was like, well, at least he raised his fee from six thousand by yeah, that point. Uh, well, we settled on ten times that it was sixty thousand. So that was kind of a great negotiation. And of course, you know, Avenel had its um, share of, you know, what can I say, uh, miscreants. But uh, originally, when it opened, it was a wonderful event, and uh, it was the Chrysler Cup which was all the senior tour PGA, uh, Gary Player and Nicholas and Arnold Palmer. I mean, they, you know, the world versus the Americans. And, of course, Arnold Palmer, you know, in his first two rounds gets a hole-in-one back-to-back two days in a row, you know, on our third hole. So that hits the news media all over. So we couldn't have gotten off to a better start. And... Uh, consequently, there was not one complaint about the course. It really wasn't ready for prime time because, you know, and no fault of the PGA Tour, but they didn't have a lot of money to build these things. And we told them, I 
basically went, you know, with to Dean, and we literally uh, reviewed. I was working out in Kansas City, and at the time there were uh, Mission Hills, you know, Indian Hills, Leewood South, Lake Quivera. They all had Zoysia fairways. Uh, and I said, why don't we do Zoysia here? And Dean, of course, had practiced at the sod farm, which had Zoysia. So he said, that's a great idea. Well, they didn't want to spend the money to sod it, so they sprig Zoysia. Well, Zoysia doesn't grow in like Bermuda grass. It took three years. Uh, so they were playing on mainly ryegrass overseed, and the ball was running out, you know, quite a ways. But the senior players were just as complimentary as could be. And then the first Kemper Open happened, and Greg Dorman, uh, I think he double bogeyed our ninth hole like two days in a row and said they ought to blow this whole place up. What he meant was the ninth hole, but it came to uh, basically be kind of resoundful that, you know, why come back to this place is, you know, ridiculous. Anyway, just, you know, one comment or whatever, and uh, as I said, Avenel basically always had kind of some, you know, time slots that were difficult, but... It garnered a lot of, you know, publicity and reputation. And it said, you know, once again, our office took off with a lot of new work. So, Dean, I, we have a lot of thanks, you know, and uh, as I said, uh, owe him a lot. And uh, Alan McCurick, well, his son actually is a golf course contractor now uh, and quite successful. So uh, just a little past history there. Yeah, we know. Alan's son very well. He's a big friend of the magazine, and we're huge fans of his work and what he's done. But, you know, we don't talk about pro golf too much on this podcast. We try to make it about the 4 million people that Mr. Alt mentioned. But if you had a chance to design a course like TPC Avenal today, how much different would it be than what you designed in the 80s? What type of challenge would it be designing for today's pro game? Well, that's a very good question. Um, obviously, you know, length is not, you know, the answer. I mean, we keep lengthening these golf courses. Um, I mean, it's like some of them are great courses or obsolete. I doubt if we'll ever have a championship at Marion again. Um, and it's a situation, it's really uh, width. And it's like, you know, this you know, bomb and gouge it, you know, it has a lot to do with the setup of a, you know, a golf course, the green speeds, the pin placements, the uh, width of the, you know, landing areas of, you know, just, you know, taking that, you know, club, the uh, killer driver, because, you know, when I started, our landing areas for the pro golfer were about 250 yards. And, you know, today... I mean, you're looking at, you know, golfers hitting the ball 330, 320. It's, it's a whole different ball game. And, you know, this has been going on, I guess, for, you know, since golf began, the inevitable improvements to the ball and the equipment. And they were lengthening those old courses back in the days and trying to, quote, tiger-proof them. And... That isn't necessarily the answer. I mean, it's like you look at, you know, Augusta, uh, and I think, you know, you look at the defense there as the greens. And if you basically, you know, have greens and the green speeds where you have to position a ball, you don't necessarily have a chance to hit the ball at the flag. 
nature, you know, can resolve that with rain and, you know, with sub-air and everything else. They get it back to firm and fast as quickly as possible. So it it's, would be a difficult task, to say the least, but one I think anybody would embrace. It's like a uh, combination of, uh, you know, the mix of the rooting, the drivable par fours, the unreachable par fives, and it's almost there's no unreachable par fives anymore. And that's just, you know, part of, I think, the evolution of the game. So that's a good question. I don't know um, all the specifics, but I know uh, I would embrace the opportunity. And that's the other thing. I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of golf pros. I mean, at Avenel, I worked with Ed Sneed. And just this little side story, uh, Ed became so, I guess, infatuated with golf architecture. Um, he called me up one day and said, I've heard about this project down in uh, South Carolina or whatever, Fusky Island, and, you know, they're going to interview architects, and I got us an interview, Tom. And I got two of my friends, Ben Crenshaw and Tom Weiskopf, who were interested in architecture, to come along with us. So I was flying down to Hilton Head uh, to meet with them and then over to the interview. And I will never forget, I was flying out of Washington down to Atlanta, and we hit some turbulence, and I'm dressed up in a coat and tie, and a lady in front of me had a Bloody Mary, threw it up in the air, and it came down right on my white shirt. So while we landed, we were a little late, and I ran to find a, you know, a shirt. I missed my connection. So I don't think it was my absence, but Jack Nicholas got the job. But that was, who knows what would have happened, because that was kind of the beginning of, I think, Ben and Tom's, you know, endeavors into architecture um, and their desire to, you know, be out there. So I've worked also with Curtis Strange. I worked a couple courses with Sam Sneed and, you get a perspective when you play with these people of, you know, what they're looking at. They're dissecting the golf course. They're not necessarily looking at the attraction, the beauty. Um, they're looking at ball position, and, you know, it's a whole different phenomenon. And I think, you know, when you have that opportunity, uh, it's great to work with a professional golfer uh, to see a different perspective on, you know, what like and, you know, what, uh, basically, um, you know, they feel challenged. And I think that's what Pete Dye did so well was make them indecisive and, uh, you know, that they're out of their comfort zone in so many different areas. Okay, I was going to save this question for the end. I have a book in my office, The Secrets of the Great Golf Course Architects. Your entry in there is about your experience with Sam Snead. Again, for our younger listeners, what type of character was Sam and how memorable was that getting a chance to interact with him and work with him a bit? Uh, Sam Steed was uh, obviously probably one of the three greatest golfers in the era of Hogan and Byron Nelson. And Steed, they were just, they were known as the triumvirate. And literally, Sam was a character. Uh, when I found out I was going to be working with him on two golf courses, I, you know, I live in Virginia, so I called him up and I said, look, Sam, I'm going to be down in Bath County where you are, and I'd love to come by and talk to you and 
get some of your thoughts. He said, well, come on by, Tommy. So I took the opportunity. I had a friend uh, that had a farm down there, and we were staying down there, and we were going to play golf later that afternoon, so he rode along with me. And I met Sam out in his um, patio, and we sat and talked for a few minutes, and then he asked me to come in and see his trophy room. Well, I said, this will be great. I'll get to see all Sam's golf trophies. Well, this is all his hunting and fishing trophies. (laughs) (laughs) Did did he have more hunting and fishing trophies than he would have had golf trophies? He did. It was incredible. (laughs) We talked for like an hour and a half. That's one of my, obviously, passions. And, of course, he had been invited here, and he caught this snook here, and he caught that tarpon there. (laughs) He had an elephant leg he shot. Uh, they hollowed it out and made a golf bag out of it. So we had all his old clubs in there. <laughs> it, was, it was just absolutely a great time. And, you know, I'm getting re- ready to leave. And he says, How? What are you doing this afternoon? And he said, You want to play golf? I said, Sure, I'd love to. Let me ask my friend. Well, he was a beginner. And he just said, Oh, no, I can't do this. And it was like, So we begged off that opportunity to play with Sam. But, the courses we did together were one in Arkansas called Balboa and Hot Springs Village and another in Tennessee at Telico Village called Toqua. And that one I got the opportunity to actually tee it up with Sam. He um, put on a clinic first, and it was just phenomenal to watch him swing. And, you know, we're teeing it up on the first hole, and everyone's saying, well, why are you playing it all the way back, Sam? He said, well, they don't play all the way back in the senior tour. It's like, uh, I'm not playing back there. So anyway, I was probably in one of my, um, what can I say? I was a decent golfer at the time, and I could hit the ball pretty good distance. So I hit a tee shot, and I'll never forget it. I actually split the fairway, and you know, I see Sam kind of reach in his back pocket, and he pulls out a ball and whacks it, and it's about 10 yards past me. <laughs> That's like, and of course, we're playing a captain's choice event, so, you know, he picks up his ball, puts it in his back pocket, and puts another ball on his pocket down and plays it. And, you know, um, I'm wondering, what's going on here? So, you know, we were well into the you know, match, but I have to tell you first that his manager comes up to me on the first tee and said, you know, Tom, you're going to really have to help Sam with the yardages because he's partially blind and, you know, one eye and he can't, you know, figure out distances anymore. Of course, it's a brand new golf course. There's no markings and I'm just doing this out of my imagination. And I was doing quite well. Uh, we got to the turn, and we were 10 under par, and Sam looks at us. He said, boys, if you don't pick it up, we're going to lose this thing. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, we have one eagle and the rest birdies. How much better can we do? So anyway, we get to, like, the 12th hole, and I will never forget. I said, Sam, it looks like it's, like, 150. Well, he pulls out, like, an 8-iron. And he airmails that green by 30 yards. <laughs> and I'm like, he looks at me. He said, God damn you, Tommy. It's like, you know, you got to give me the right yardages. And it was like, oh, well, I can see that side. But it was the difference between, you know, just, a, a, I guess, an amateur champion and a PGA professional. Every shot of his was right on the stick. I mean, it was like, you know, it didn't waver. 
And I looked at his clubs, and they were all Wilson staffs, and they literally, the sweet spot was almost concave. I mean, he hit it there so many times. And he putted, you know, side saddle at the time, and that was the other thing that separated him. Uh, he was an outstanding putter. So we finished at 21 under par and won the event by, I think, eight strokes. <laughs> so it wasn't the people were crawling up our uh, tail end or whatever. But, you know, we got prizes at the end, and they were like, well, where's my prize? And uh, it's because, well, you're a professional. You can't accept these gifts or whatever. He said, well, hell, I can't. That's why I'm a professional. <laughs> anyway, uh, I will never also forget, my partner was there, Brian. He was playing in the foursome in front of us. And he was basically, he had a hole in one on one of the par threes. Well, all the reporters are following us, of course, and they're looking at Sam Sneed. And he's basically, um, you know, being asked, well, what do you think of that shot? You know, what do you think of that, Sam? He said, what shot? Because he was hitting the girl up, you know, who was the cart girl. <laughs> it's like uh, Sam was quite the character, to say the least. But the other thing I appreciated about Sam, the other course we went to open, it rained that day, so we couldn't actually play. But he entertained the people that showed up uh, with his story, because the next week was actually going to be the uh, British Open or the Open at St. Andrews, and I believe it was St. Andrews where he went and won. He was only there once, and he remembered the trip. A steamship over here, I was with Saracen in a room, the guy snored, and I unmercifully, I shot, you know, 68 the first day and 71 the second, and then, you know, five. you know, he could remember every shot and the whole trip, and he just was a great entertainer, and it was like, he's like a savant with the memory Oh, and of course his athleticism was unbelievable, his nimbleness. I mean, I could look at him, you know, picking his ball out of the cups when we played. It was like, you know, effortlessly bending all the way down. And, you know, and he was in his late 60s, early 70s at the time when we played. So it was quite an experience, one I'll never forget. And uh, uh, I think any time you get to play with a professional golfer, it's uh, memorable. I played a, a round or two with Curtis, and it's like a whole different world. It's like, you know, you can go out casually and shoot 65 or something, and it's like, well, you know, can you do that for four days in a row? And, you know, this is when he was uh, getting ready for the senior tour and stuff. But anyway, um, it was quite a quite a rare opportunity. I don't know how we're going to tr transition from Sam Snead into, into the, this next question and this next topic, but we're going to give it a try. You've obviously worked all over the country, but you've worked extensively in the Mid-Atlantic where, where you live. Uh, when you're designing a course or even renovating a course in the Mid-Atlantic, which is just an incredibly tough growing region, and the superintendents there have a ultra-challenging job, what are some of the things you've done over the course of your career to mitigate some of the growing challenges that superintendents in the Mid-Atlantic face? Well, that's an excellent question. And as you know, mm -hmm. in the industry, that's the transition zone. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first started, all of our golf courses, like around the Washington area, were pretty much ryegrass and poana, kind of the Heinz 
57 mix or whatever. And I'll never forget, um, a new course was built, Robert Trent Jones. Uh, and it was all bent grass, all bent grass, fairways, greens, and tees. And we had one of the most horrific winters, um, and it basically wiped out all the poana, all the ryegrass, on all, you know, the courses around Washington, except for Robert Trent Jones. Everyone knew that. So the next thing was we're replanting all our courses to bent grass. Well, of course, you know, the other thing with the ryegrass, gray leaf spots showed up, and, you know, the things uh, changed drastically. Now, one of the things that uh, will never go back in popularity was Mr. Ald, I told you he was frugal. Not only would he plant his roughs to K31, he would plant his fairways. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So, as I said, consequently, it was because, you know, sometimes we didn't have fairway water at all, and Mother Nature had to grow it. And he said, well, K31 is, you know, drought resistant. And, you know, if you just plant it every year, it will bring juvenility in. And I'm like, you know, he was cursed to this day and people trying to get rid of their K31. But the uh, next thing that kind of happened, it was uh, a surge of bent grass golf courses. And then now the Bermudas have become, you know, so much in vogue uh, that, you know, we're pushing further and further up. I mean, a lot of uh, the work that I've done, military work, uh, all their courses are now pretty much, you know, a combination of different winter-hardy Bermudas as far as the fairways and tees. Uh, we're still, you know, as I said, a little further south. We've gone to, you know, some Bermuda greens, you know, down in the Richmond and Williamsburg and Virginia Beach area where I've done a lot of work. Uh, we haven't really pushed those up, you know, uh, north that much uh, when they move by north is up towards Washington. But, you know, the fairways, as I said, a lot of the uh, Bermudas come in. A lot of it has to do with the water, uh, you know, uh, environment and everything else. And obviously, you know, in the summer, you know, we're not spraying a lot of chemicals. We don't have a lot of disease to worry about. So it's been a combination. And the breeders are constantly coming up with improved bent grass varieties and it's just incredible that you know what we have the palettes to select from now <laughs> the you know if we choose to go with fescue and bluegrass ruts um you know we have a lot of choices there we have lots of you know we can do um like you know hard fescues and you know, tunings and things like that in other areas for accents. So there's a lot of choices in the palette. I mean, it was last week you got to watch Harbor Town, and I spent a lot of time with Pete Dye and over the years, and one of his greatest, I think, you know, uh, things he said at Harbor Town, you know, a lot of people appreciate the architecture and that Arnold Palmer won the first tournament, but it was my variety of grasses. You know, he had like 10 different grasses he put out there, you know, and of course, I think they're down to three now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we experiment sometimes, but that was one of the things you don't want to be necessarily the guinea pig for something new. And like I said years ago, we were, you know, planning things, you know, from we got from Joe Dewich, and of course, when.
when he came out with like A1A4, you know, a lot of people uh, were slow to hop on it, and then because they thought you had to top dress it constantly. And as it turns out, so many of these grasses are so much um, more resilient to conditions, and you know that's one of the big things. Now, one thing I've noticed over the years, and one of the great attributes of superintendents is we try to get them involved in the project from day one if it's a new golf course. Uh, and what I mean by that is selection of grasses, you know, the objective of being a on-site superintendent to, you know, basically be there to see things the architect can't see on a weekly basis or whatever where, you know, they're putting in drainage or uh, irrigation or things that are under the ground. And, you know, as I said, then I've learned long ago, uh, if the superintendent wants it to happen, he'll make it happen. So if he gets to work with you on choosing the turf varieties, then so much the better. Um, you know, it's like, uh, I think that's a great attribute, and it makes everybody better. They We get, you know, uh, the best out of, you know, the new research. So the Mid-Atlantic, as I said, it's got, you know, it's, you know, the mountainous areas. It's got its, you know, can I say, its tidal areas uh, all through Tidewater, Virginia. I've done, you know, 15 different projects down there. Um, it's got, you know, the rolling hills. It's got a little bit of everything, uh, you know, to glean from. And as I said, so architecturally, it's, you know, great to have an opportunity to work on different topographic uh, features. And as I said, um, you know, everything's a little different in the Mid-Atlantic. You recently completed a new course in the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, tell our listeners about Cut Along in Lake Anna, Virginia, and how rewarding was it to complete the course, and what were some of the decisions you had to make when designing that, that course? complete and it's still I'm still working on it and later today I'll be headed back down there <laughs> well, well Pete Dye said a golf course is never complete right <laughs> well and as I said I have a feeling since I've had a lake house and Lake Anna for 35 years hmm. uh, and this is five minutes away I'm going to be like Alistair McKenzie and kind of retire to Paso Tiempo and you know Donald Ross to Pinehurst and kind of fiddle with this the rest of my life um it's basically now 22 years since I first started the project in 1999. And it's one of those things, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, I have a course that, you know, I started back then. Well, this is one I've worked on almost constantly since that inception. Uh, I've had four different developers. Uh, that's the hardest part is reselling myself each time to the next person in. Um, basically all the engineers and environmentalists and everybody that we originally work with are no longer there. Uh, I'm like the sole survivor. And speaking of that agronomics in the Mid-Atlantic, the course originally was conceived to be a bent grass golf course. It was a thousand acre site and basically it was timbered and it was cleaned up and planted to fescue and uh, millet 
and you know we used the open areas or I did as far as uh, originally because of perk sites I used the bad areas that didn't perk because it was going to be well and septic and then changed to sewer and water so it's had a lot of transitions and I think one of the interesting things is I had gone up and played the National Golf Links uh, a couple of times and I knew you know, there was a, a period when some people were doing what they call copycat courses. They were taking, you know, holes out of Augusta, like Amen Corner or, you know, um, out of Oakmont or something and building these courses. But they were actual copies, so people could say, oh, I played, you know, this. And they were very popular, but I just said, you know, Charles Blair McDonald kind of cherry-picked, you know, some of the best features from Ireland, England, Scotland, or whatever, and consequently uh, came up with a fabulous design that I could play day in and day out. Um, it's just a wonderful property, and I happened to be there. I think the first time I played it, it was you couldn't even see the water around. It's the second time they had completely cleaned out all the perimeter, and what a beautiful site it is. Um, so the idea was, you know, to kind of cherry-pick famous golf holes or whatever and emulate some of the design characteristics. Well, as I said, Cutalong started out as a, it was actually originally the links of Lake Anna, and it was going to be an Irish and an English and a Scottish nine, and <clears throat> 300 homes, but when the engineers talked the original developer into sewer and water. It went up to 900 homes. And he said, oh, that's great, but they didn't tell him it would be $20 million, you know, to build these facilities. <clears throat> so he passed that on to the second owners, and they did a lot of planning and basically didn't do any construction. And then we finally went ahead in 2012, broke ground, and built three holes and started. Uh, we actually grew them in because the owner wanted to prove he was going to actually develop a golf course. And we had then transitioned to Bermuda grass. And we, I realized, one, the timber property, we really had limited topsoil. And two, our source of water was very limited to a uh, contaminated stream from the mining operations that took place around there. Uh, the pH in the stream is 2.2, but we tried to neutralize that, and we grew in the Bermuda and the bent grass greens uh, initially, and then the whole project went into bankruptcy and foreclosed on. And then a fourth owner emerged, and we started again in 2018, and through 2019 and 20, we finished the course uh, late last year, December. And as I said, I uh, <clears throat> enlisted an old compatriot of mine, Ron Witten. I said, if anybody, you know, can get a, you know, some conceptual ideas from some of the classic architects, um, you know, Ron can. So in 2005, he came out and we walked the site for a couple of days, and Ron came back with an 80-page volume of pictures and stuff from his files and archives and I kind of went through all that and we created the the master plan of you know using 
like the 14th bunker, excuse me, the uh, bunker on hole number 10 at Augusta that, you know, was the old, by the old first screen. It's probably the only original Mackenzie bunker left. Uh, it's one of our bunkers with a pebble beach green of number 17. So it was an intermixing of different classic, you know, architects, and it gave people an opportunity to, you know, literally see and play <clears throat> some of the great, you know, like, design ideas and stuff, and it's been, you know, very well received. They got over 100 members in just a few months, and, you know, as I said, uh, we literally have a little trailer and a couple porta potties to, you know, um, speak of as far as amenities. So the golf has been, uh, you know, what can I say? It's been a an odyssey. I've got a lot of stories, and most of them are good. I had a, a great opportunity during the pandemic <clears throat> to work uh, outdoors. Um, and, you know, through all of 2020, was able to continue to uh, finish the course. Um, I worked with a, a great shaper, um, Brian Jennings, and Brian was my original shaper back in 2012 with another firm, and he came back to work with me on uh, cut along and finish it. And, you know, there's only one shaper on that whole job. So it has a lot of uh, fond memories for me, and as I said, I keep plugging away. Well, last thing here, are you a better negotiator now in 2021 than you were in 1971 when you got Mr. Alt to, to boost your pay to 9000 <laughs> the other thing that is always interesting is as an architect people say well you know as I said obviously you've got to be a salesman and you do and you've got to basically it isn't always about money but one of the hardest things that I've learned over the years I never expected to be a boss I expected basically you know to be you know working some studio or whatever but it's literally collecting money. I mean, to this day, I mean, it's like, you know, it's the old adage that, you know, you've got to get uh, paid, you know, because we're not doing this as a religious experience. We're actually doing this as for employment. And consequently, that's, uh, you know, negotiating fees and things like that has really never been a problem. I mean, it was hard for Brian and I to break out of Ed's mold, quite honestly, where we were so inexpensive. I'll tell you this one brief story. I've done 24 courses for a company called Cooper Communities. And one year they came to me and they said, Tom, we have three new courses we're going to do, one in South Carolina and one in Tennessee and one in uh, uh, Branson, Missouri. We want um, – we've had some – you know, one of our marketing people thought maybe we should look at some other architects. So could you give us the names of some other people we might work with? And I'm like, huh, <laughs> after all these years, uh, I'm going to be poo-hooed by some marketing guy. So I gave him Nicholas Palmer and Fazio. Well, they got back to me about three months later and said, well, you know, your fee for all three courses is less than their fee for one, so we're going to give you all three. So... Yeah, negotiation, the, the money thing was never, you know, what it was about. 
it was literally getting, you know, the work. And as I said, I've been fortunate enough to have done over 100 courses. And there aren't a lot of architects that, you know, have had that opportunity. I'm sad to say that a couple of them have disappeared, uh, and a lot of my par threes have gone by the wayside. And now it's funny, uh, par three courses are coming back in vogue. I, I did two down in Myrtle Beach that did, you know, a cane patch in Midway that did more, I think, rounds of golf than uh, the two 18-hole courses they owned. Uh, so they kept them for years and years, and I think just recently did away with them. But, yeah, I'm, uh, as I said, I think my negotiating skills are still pretty good. Well, this is a lot of fun. At some point, we're going to negotiate for more of your time and get you on the, the podcast again. But, no, seriously, Tom, thanks for telling so many stories, and thanks for your, all your contributions to the game of golf. Well, I appreciate it. One thing um, I just wanted to add, I think one of the things in – my profession is the idea of being in the American Society of Golf Architects. Some of my very best friends are in there. In other words, we compete against each other, but you'll never have a forum. It's just like talking with superintendents. It's like talking with, you know, even golf professionals. Um, You know, the industry itself is so important. And I think um, this is a very small world believe it or not, in golf. And, you know, just like we were talking earlier about your, you know, ties in with the Penn State area and, you know, some of the work that I did that, you know, people don't even realize um, that you did. And I think one of the things is just staying, you know, the fact that you're still out there working because it's a profession that you just don't retire in. Um, I know that, you know, like I used to see Mr. Jones at, events and stuff and you know he was in a wheelchair at the time but still working so as long as your mind's sharp and you know you basically love you know what you do you're going to continue in this profession and hopefully continue doing good work so i thank you for the opportunity today to have a chat and uh hopefully we'll hook up again in the future